All right. Well, as the children are going out, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Seems like whenever I get the chance to preach somewhere, I get sick, so hopefully my voice is understandable to you. Philip is doing a great job with the sound, so I appreciate that. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, at the sinful woman. Um, and for those of you who've been with us going through Job, uh, I think this is a good place for us to go, going to the Gospels, uh, following Job, but also because I think we see some of the same themes at work in the hearts of the Pharisees in this passage and their views of God. Um, and so I, hopefully this will be a good place for us to go together. Um, but let me read that for us as we get started so you can have it in its entirety, and then I'll ask you to join me in praying that God would bless our time together. Starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you join me in praying? Uh, gracious Father, as we continue to worship you, by turning our attention to your word, to the, to the reading and preaching of it, would you continue to be at work among us by your spirit? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Father, especially as we come to this passage this morning, would you give us an awareness like that of the woman in this passage? Would you help us to be challenged where we need to be challenged and comforted where we need to be comforted? Father, you are faithful. You have shown yourself to be true time and time again. And so we ask these things with great hope and confidence because of who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. You've probably experienced this tension. Uh, I think most of us have at some point in our lives, either as the victim or the culprit. Perhaps you've walked into a room, into a dinner party, 
uh, into a room in the workplace, and instantly you didn't fit in. Everyone was telling different jokes. Everyone was wearing nicer things. It was clear that you just did not belong, and you're instantly kind of looking for the exits. Perhaps you've been that person before who, who sees that, that person walk into the room and has thought, I better not talk to them. If, if I get seen with them, I know what other people are going to think about me. Uh, this would be quite embarrassing. I had a somewhat similar experience even recently. Uh, KSU has allowed me to have a gym membership. And uh, this new gym is really impressive. And it has varying levels of gymness to it. And kind of in the heart of the gym, where the true worshipers of the gym go, there's this free weights, like heavy lifting, explosive movement area. And I made the mistake of walking there one day, and I instantly knew, like, I do not belong here. <laughs> I've been working hard on this dad bod, and, like, it's not welcome here. So it's, it's something we're all familiar with, but oftentimes in those moments, it's very revealing, isn't it? Right? When we experience that tension, when we're the person who doesn't belong, it's, it's exposing for our hearts. We feel exposed. Uh, and it's also an exposing experience for those who would stand back. When we're the ones who say no... <laughs> I better not associate with that person, right? And I think that's, that's why Luke gives us this story this morning. Uh, Jesus finds himself at this dinner party in just one of those situations where up walks this woman who does not belong. And as she enters the room, it's, it's exposing and it's telling not just what's going on in her heart, but what's going on in the hearts of those around him. And it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that that Simon questions whether Jesus is really a prophet. And Jesus doesn't just know who this woman is. He knows what Simon is thinking. And so he addresses Simon's heart by calling attention to this awkwardness, right? By, by calling his attention to the contrast between this woman who is a sinner, who we're told many times is a sinner, and Simon and the way he treats Jesus and it shows us just the stark contrast between someone who has really experienced and tasted the grace of, of Jesus and the person who thinks they understand and know God, who thinks that God is rewarding them or accepting them because of their acceptability. Like I said, I think it's, there's some uh, connections even, if you will, to some of the, the counselors of Job who thought they understood God and he was this machine who would respond to their, their knowledge and their righteousness with good things and their unrighteousness with, with bad things. And this sinful woman, she goes to Jesus and experiences his grace and receives his mercy and the assurance of pardon, threatens them, threatens that view of God. It, it threatens everything that they're about. And so they move to anger against Jesus. So this morning, as we look at this passage, uh, I think we too should be aware of, of the contrast Jesus is uh, calling to our attention between this woman and Simon. And I think it begins, as we see the difference between the two, with awareness. That awareness really is one of the, the most noticeable things about the difference between the two. For Simon's part, he's a very aware, astute person of certain things, isn't he? Uh, he, he's aware that Jesus is around. He's perhaps interested to hear from him. He invites him to his house. And as soon as this woman walks in, Simon is aware of who she is, 
what she does, and we're not told about that, and we'll come back to that in a moment. He's aware of, of who she is, and he's not just aware of who she is, he's aware of what she means socially, right? He's aware of what it would mean to interact with her, to touch her, and that's how he dismisses Jesus, right? He, he knows that this woman is of a certain position that she should not be associated with, and, and perhaps he's not quite sure what to do with Jesus until they interact. And then his problem is solved, right? Oh, I don't need to worry too much about this Jesus guy. Look who he's interacting with. Whew, like, dodged a bullet there. He's been saying some crazy things. Simon is a middle schooler. And this is no insult to those of you like Amanda who have a heart for middle schoolers. If you're someone who enjoyed middle school, that's, that's great. Just keep it to yourself. Uh, for most people, middle school is just this, this awful time, isn't it? Uh, you, you're starting to realize that boys are boys and girls are girls, and yet you have none of the social grace to navigate those waters. And, and, and because of that, everyone is fairly mean, and there's quite a bit of, of judging of others, and you're aware of what table everyone is sitting at. At least that's how our cafeteria was. Uh, they might as well have had signs on them. And, and that's how you either were comfortable with your existence or perhaps uncomfortable. But the truth is everyone is uncomfortable, Right? Everyone in middle school is just trying to pretend they're not uncomfortable with this crazy change that's happening in their life. When in fact, everyone is awkward. <laughs> but we're gonna be mean to try and cover that up. And unfortunately, that, that's where Simon is and I think that's where so often we find ourselves. That's where our default setting is. Is, is we're uncomfortable with who we are. All of us, regardless of where we're coming from, are aware that things aren't how they're supposed to be. And instead of turning to the forgiveness that God can offer us through Jesus, we turn to comparing ourselves to others, uh, finding that relativism, that finding those, those certain people that we can point to and say, wow, at least I'm not that bad. And when God's holiness confronts us or we'd have the opportunity to confront us, we may not be able to look at that and say, oh, well, that's, that's really bad, but we can dismiss it, Right? Look who Jesus interacts with. God in the flesh is there before Simon, the person who more than anyone else should be able to help him see that his holiness, his holiness, his righteousness doesn't live up to God's holy standard. But he uses this, this woman's sinfulness in Jesus' mercy towards her as a reason for dismissing him, as a way to find comfort. And, and, and this, is, this is where our hearts are so often. That, that we seek comfort and we seek to justify ourselves by, by the failings of those around us. And, and the danger here isn't just for us as individuals, it's, it's for us corporately too, isn't it? Uh, that, that we can try and find comfort in who we are as a church by saying, well, at least we don't believe what, what those people believe, right? That, yeah, they're doing evangelism and discipleship, but their doctrines, it's not that good. Uh, yeah, they have a building, but you know, they use all those gimmicks. When we should be finding our comfort in Christ. So often we're aware of everything but the grace that's offered to us in him. And, and that's why this woman is, should be so convicting for Simon and should be so convicting for us because she's very aware as well, isn't she? But she's aware of entirely different things. 
She seems to be fairly unaware of the other people in the room other than Jesus. Now, whether she was truly unaware, we could debate. Uh, These are the sort of people that might be interested in throwing stones at her. So to say she was completely unaware of them might be an overstatement. But she finds out that Jesus is there. And clearly she's already had some interaction with him or she's had some knowledge of him given to her because she's determined to get to him. Right? And, and later on, when Jesus tells his parable about the, the two people who've been forgiven so much, it's clear that for his parable to make sense of this woman, she's already experienced the forgiveness that he has to offer her. That explains why she's loving the way she's loving. And so she's clearly aware of what Jesus means to a sinner like her. And like everyone else in the story, she doesn't seem to be working to try and deny her sinfulness, does she? Instead, she places herself in the most humble position possible at his dirty, nasty feet, right? Sandals, dirt roads. You've heard the feet spill somewhere probably. Like it, it's the most degrading place. And that's, that's where she puts, she doesn't presume to speak directly to him. She doesn't presume to sit next to him. Like, hey, could you scoot over? I'd love to sit next to Jesus. Uh, she puts herself in that humble spot. It, it's clear that she's, She's very aware of who she is and who Jesus is. That there's no false pretenses about her worth or her value. And yet none of us could look at what she's doing and say that she's anything but, but overjoyed. And Jesus looks at her and says she's in love because she understands, she gets it, she's tasted it. She's aware, and it's impossible to look at that awareness, to talk about that awareness without also being moved and impressed by her sense of awe, right? The worship going on in this passage. She's not just aware of who Jesus is, she's in awe of who Jesus is. And once again, the contrast between the two is what helps make this so clear because Simon is utterly unamazed, isn't he? He's at best doubtfully curious, a little interested in Jesus, but that's not where he stays. By the end of the passage, he and his friends are angered, aren't they? They're not impressed by Jesus. Instead, they're they're angered by him. He invites him to his house, but then once Jesus starts turning to this woman who is a sinner who shouldn't even be there, they start to say, who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? He can't be a prophet. He can't forgive her. You see, they're threatened by Jesus. It's like going to that, that, that cool kid, going to the, the, the pre-nursing student or the steady churchgoer and looking at them and saying, your security in life isn't based on your success, your popularity, your sterling church attendance record. If, if that's where your comfort and your security is found, that is incredibly threatening, isn't it? It's, it's pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, if your view of God is, I've been basically good and I'm definitely better than most and therefore he's gonna be good to me, Jesus stepping into that room and forgiving that woman, that, that threatens your entire worldview, doesn't it? And I think that's something we need to understand. And it it makes sense of Jesus' other hard-to-swallow comments, either for me or against me. I'm going to divide fathers and sons. 
Like Jesus is controversial. He's scandalous in what he does for sinners. And because our, our default setting as sinners is to find other ways, any other way we can justify ourselves other than admitting that God is God, Jesus' grace is threatening to us. You cannot just play with Jesus. Uh, you can't just be a, a mild follower, curious about what he has to say. Eventually, you'll either love or you'll hate him. And if you continue to seek to justify yourself, the response will be hate. But this woman, it's, it's the very opposite, isn't it? She's in love with him. She shows this extravagant, she makes us blush, doesn't she? Right? Like it's, it's, it's TMI almost. Like gross. Your tears and your hair. We're told that she has this alabaster flask, this expensive ornamental probably flask full of this very expensive perfume or ointment. And she doesn't presume to, it's like this is probably her life savings. Who knows how she earned it? It's probably her life savings, and she doesn't say, Jesus, this is, this is everything I have to give you. Could I, could I put this on your hands? Your hands have worked great miracles. That'd be maybe on your head. She, she puts it on his feet, right? Like When you get someone a nice gift, what do you want them to do with it? Stick it on their feet? <laughs> hide it? Right, like when family members are coming over, if you've, if you've gotten some, some decorative pieces that maybe didn't go with everything, you might be scrambling around to find those pieces and pull them back out, right? Like, grandma's coming to town. We'll, we'll put this back on the mantle. Not that we ever do that. This is something y'all do. Uh, right? Like, you want to see your gift honored. Like, oh, I love this. Thank you so much. Right? And that's what's so amazing. She doesn't just bring the best gift, the best she has to offer. She views it as nothing in comparison to Jesus. She puts it at his feet. Like, it's, it's extravagant worship. It's, it's loving adoration because she has beheld Jesus and seen that she's so much more loved than she could ever dare imagine. Um, that's it's a, a butchered quote we share a lot at RUF because we say it a lot. It gets more and more butchered, but I, I believe it was Tim Keller that the gospels that were, were far worse than we, we previously imagined and yet we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. Something along those lines. And, and you see that here for this woman, right? If I'm, I'm sappy, I'm romantic, I love weddings. I'll say that proudly. I love weddings, like I do. I got to go to a wedding recently, one of my best friends, and I felt kind of bad for the wedding planner because I knew I was leaning, like I was up there with the groomsman and I was kind of leaning so I could see his face. But I didn't care. Like, I wanted to see his face when he saw his bride. Um, right? Like, someone enters into marriage with you, and they, they see you for who you are, and they know all of your quirks and your blemishes and all of the things that should lead them to run away. And they still say, I, I know you, and I love you. And when that happens, the, the appropriate response is loving adoration, right? That's why it's so beautiful to see that, that face as the bride comes down the aisle. And Jesus does that for us. He looks at us and knows. He doesn't say, oh, your sins aren't that bad. He doesn't say that to this woman. In her presence, he says, her sins, which are many. Right, he looks us 
and knows our, our sins more than we know them, knows the depths of them far more than we could ever know, and still says, I love you, and I've, I'm giving, and I have given my life for you. Right? And just like any newlywed, that, that should be a cause for adoration and for love. And that, that's, the, that's why Jesus tells the parable he does. If you've been forgiven a lot, like, how could you not respond this way? But it goes back to awareness, doesn't it? Do you, have you really been forgiven a lot? Do you understand what Jesus offers to you? For someone who, who has understood and has been moved by that, the, the final thing we see in the difference between the woman and Simon is this incredible assurance, right? Once again, based on the, the parable that Jesus tells and the way that he looks at her and says she has loved, we would want to say that she has already been forgiven. And yet the passage ends with Jesus three times declaring that her sins have been forgiven. Right? And numbers, maybe not all that important, most, sometimes uh, important when you're doing your taxes, important in the Bible sometimes. Right? It, it's a number of wholeness and completion that it, it, it seems as if Jesus, as he turns away from Simon and looks at this woman and concludes his encounter with Simon, he seeks to assure her of her forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. You have loved much. And it's, we need to be very, very clear here. She is justified by faith, right? Verse, the final verse makes that clear. It's almost like Luke was, Jesus was aware of the chance of being misunderstood. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And yet Jesus looks at this woman and he points out all of the different ways in which she has responded compared to the way that Simon has responded and says, the gospel is bearing fruit in her life, Simon. You, you couldn't even extend common courtesy to me, some water from my nasty feet, some common olive oil, a, a welcoming kiss, like handshake. She has poured out this extravagant worship and she's not securing my love with that. She's not somehow upping the ante here, like, Simon, you were pretty righteous, and then she came in and was like, whoa, even more righteous than Simon. I'm gonna give you my love. She understood. She has been loved much. She's been much loved by, by Christ. And so he can turn and, and look at her and look at us and say, she gets it. When the gospel grips your heart, when you see the grace I have to offer you and you rejoice in that grace, the gospel is taking root. Right? We should remember, why, Jesus, why did Jesus come in the first place? Why were we redeemed? Why? What, what, is, our, what is our chief end? Presbyterians? Right? In, in, in his final, his, his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He came so that we might glorify as we were meant to glorify, that we might finally rejoice and delight in his father, and in him, and so it's nothing but Jesus achieving the ends for which he came as this woman's heart is transformed, as she's led to rejoice. She's experiencing the truth of, of Psalm 51, 
Uh, if you remember that, that beautiful psalm that David wrote after he had sinned and was crying out for forgiveness, in a very similar way, there's a great awareness in that psalm of his sin, uh, that, that he has indeed sinned, that he has been sinful from birth. There's a desire that he too could worship, that the joy of the Lord's salvation would be restored to his bones and that his lips would then be able to sing God's praise. And yet the, the kind of the peak and the pinnacle of that psalm is the same truth we see this woman experiencing before us, a broken and contrite heart, O oh Lord, you will not reject. God does not reject the broken. He doesn't. He doesn't reject anyone who comes to him in repentance. And, and that's what we see happening before us. That's what is happening before Simon's eyes. And he, more than anyone present probably, should have known better, should have known of Psalm 51 and said, it's happening. Jesus is doing what, what David longed for and, and proclaimed in Psalm 51. And, and as she does it, Jesus doesn't say, great, you've gotten it. Now let's, let's move forward. You don't need to be, no, he says, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven, right? He, he wants her to see and taste and know that his grace abounds. Uh, his grace wasn't just a one-time thing to get her back up on her feet, but instead she returns to him. And as she returns to him, she receives greater assurance and that assurance is based on the, the mercy and the grace of Christ. And that'd be a beautiful place to end, wouldn't it? That'd be so sweet. And yet, I think we have to end really where the passage ends, and that's, that's with the somewhat ominous silence. It's not the only time Luke does it in his writing. I think in, in Luke chapter 15, with the famous parable of the prodigal son, he does something similar, where really he's addressing the, the critics, those who are grumbling, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in the same way, that, in that, with that parable, he ends with kind of a cliffhanger. The older brother doesn't repent. We don't learn about his repentance. In the same way, the passage doesn't end in a way that should give great comfort to Simon. Uh, if you're following what Jesus is saying, you, you might be sitting there thinking and asking the question, and this is, this is a good question to ask. So is, is Simon forgiven? Uh, in the parable, it's two people who are forgiven. It's not just one. And Jesus ends by saying, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven little. But Simon, who is forgiven little, loves little. Is that what it says? No, there's this, there's this parallel in the passage, and they're back and forth between Simon and the woman, and that parallelism just breaks off at the end. Like, he doesn't say, okay, great job. You're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, Simon. You're kind of forgiven. Uh, it, it's, it's much more vague and open-ended than that, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And the last we hear from Simon and his friends isn't, isn't rejoicing, isn't, wow, this is good news. It's, it's grumbling, isn't it? This can't be. This, is, this isn't right. And so the, the difficult thing about a passage that's so beautiful is it also is meant to be, I think, unsettling to us. Are we, like Simon, unaware of 
our own sin, of the grace Jesus has to offer us, and yet so aware of others' sins? Are we very aware of the talents and the gifts and the skills and the accomplishments we have while being very unaware of our ongoing and abiding need for the, for the grace that Jesus has to offer us? By the end of the passage, the, the difference between Simon and this woman is clear. It's two very different hearts, isn't it? There's, there's no way we could look at this passage and say that their hearts are even in the same, playing the same game, in the same ballpark. What do you do with Jesus? What will, our, will our church be known as a place where people are radically aware of their own sin and the mercy and grace that Jesus has to offer us? Or will we be known as a place that's known for worrying about building programs, um, about other people's beliefs and views and whether we are better than them? This is something that's going to move us to worship. Or I'll worship just be another way of convincing ourselves that we're, we're doing all right. We're doing a lot better than the next person. Um, as we prepare to, to sing our last song together, would you join me in praying uh, that we'd be moved just like this woman, that, that even our last song of worship would be in response to having been loved much in Christ. Father, thank you so much for bringing this woman to Jesus when you did. Thank you so much for not telling us what her sin is, making it a little harder for us to keep playing that game of saying, well, I haven't done that. But instead, thank you that your grace abounds, that there is no sin so dark and so deep, that, that your grace cannot win, that we cannot experience the sweet relief of being told our sins are forgiven. And so would you give us an awareness of our sin and of your grace and all a, a humble yet joyful adoration at the feet of Jesus and in coming to you and worshiping you, would you give us sweet assurance? Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted and convict us where we need to be convicted? You are good. You are worthy. We love you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.